Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. In today's Modern Readers episode, we're discussing five tips for reading television shows and movies with a critical lens. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I'm excited to talk about reading TV. Me too. We don't talk about it a lot on the podcast, but we're both like TV people. Like we always like to have a show and we like to talk about them analytically as well. (laughs) Even if it's just like, here's the show and here's why I did or didn't like it. Yeah, totally. Um, I think this is going to be so interesting, fun. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot from you because I think you are really great at visual analysis. And I, because I don't read a lot of books for quote unquote fun, I mean, (laughs) what other people consider fun. (laughs) My escapism is often through TV. And so I don't, I don't as often maybe do the like really close reading of TV as I think comes very naturally to you. Um, And I'm excited for this as an entry point over on my Fiction Matters Substack. I had a great conversation with our friend Tracy, who hosts the Stacks podcast about the state of book criticism. And one of the things that I keep thinking about is just how how Tracy said she wishes book criticism was more like TV and film criticism, where people felt more freedom to just be like, I didn't like that. <laughs> and here, here's why. We readers sometimes have a reverence around books, which is understandable. But I just I, I'm totally with Tracy that there's room for more lightheartedness in the same way we talk about film and TV. So I'm just really, I'm looking forward to talking about the lightheartedness as well as kind of the rigorous in-depth analysis we can bring to TV. It's going to be fun. Oh, I like that perspective. And I like thinking about how, like in general conversation or even sharing maybe opinions online, people are maybe less afraid to share what they did or didn't like about a TV show. And they're so much more precious with books. Yes. And maybe in a weird flip-flop way, as we talk about being critical and um, analyzing and examining the TV and movies that we watch, um, it will help give people an entry point for applying that to their books as well. So it's a little bit of both. Yes. Um, Sarah, for our Modern Readers episodes, usually we start and we talk about something that we've recently read or taken in with a literary lens. And this is really broad and open for interpretation. So what is something you've been reading with a literary lens lately? Well, I recently watched over the course of three nights because it is still challenging to watch a movie, (laughs) Leave the World Behind, the new Netflix film adaptation of the Ruman Alam novel from several years ago. This is a Sam Esmail production. He directed Mr. Robot, and he's known for his very stylized productions. And I think he was a great director to 
pick for for Leave the World Behind. It was a really fun viewing experience because Miles had just finished reading the book like the day before we um the day before we started watching. And I had read and loved the book, but you know, a couple years ago that the year it came out, I think it was 2020 or maybe 2019. Um and so it was it was just really fun to talk about like because what I remembered were maybe some of the bigger themes, some standout scenes, and the overall impressions I was left with. But he, of course, remembered all of the details. So it was a great viewing experience because we could talk about the way the adaptation changed the details, but maybe still fit with the tone, what it was working to enhance, what maybe it downplayed a little bit. It, it's I really ended up liking the film a lot. I I think, I mean, we've talked about adaptations on the podcast before. I think the best adaptations do change some details in order to enhance a tone or a theme that they're really trying to emphasize. And I think that the the movie did a great job with that. So that's my, that's what I read and watched recently. Oh, I have not watched that one. I did read the book but I don't remember much about it at all. Well, that's what I was saying. I was like, I remember the beginning and the end, but like nothing yeah. in the middle. And Miles was like, yeah, that's because like nothing really happens in the middle except conversations. Yeah. But there are some really, I think, smart kind of um, set piece scenes that he adds that enhance the like the paranoia and the weirdness of what's going on. Um, I thought, yeah, I thought he made some good choices. Cool. Okay. I want to come back to uh, making choices and talk about that in a second, but my recent read, I guess I'm not reading this with the literary lens. It's more like I'm listening to other people use their lenses, but I have really been enjoying the brand new culture study podcast from Anne Helen Peterson. We talk about Anne all the time on this show and yeah we do (laughs) we're (laughs) fangirls we really are because so much of what she does aligns with our public scholarship mission and just like the way we like to reflect and read and analyze and take things in critically and just constantly learn about the world around us so um Anne Helen Peterson writes the culture study newsletter on Substack her podcast is available not just on Substack, but everywhere. And two recent episodes stand out to me. Um, I listened to these with my husband as we were doing some holiday road tripping. Um, She has an episode about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey and why everyone is obsessed with their relationship. And one of the interesting things is that um, Anne Helen Peterson sometimes refers to celebrities as a text Mm -hmm. and the text of the celebrity and their text and what they're putting into the text versus what kind of texts we are building around them. I think that that choice is really fascinating and specific that she chooses to say, um, we're reading them. Yeah. Um, like instead of we're getting to know them, we're reading them. Um, so that was great. And then I also listened to an episode about Paw Patrol, um, which my child does not watch. We have not even like come close to introducing him to it. 
But it just seems like by the age of five, every kid like knows Paw Patrol, right? Like Theo will see Paw Patrol stuff and he just says puppies. Um, He doesn't like know their names or like know what it is. He just gets excited about dogs, but he loves dogs. And so I feel like it is a ticking time bomb until this thing explodes in my house. I don't want it to though. <laughs> so um, it was an episode and Anne Helen Peterson had someone on to talk about Paw Patrol and like critically analyzing children's television and um, watching it as an adult and like some good and bad takeaways. So I found those two episodes super interesting and really in line with what we're going to talk about today, which is how to read TV and movies, which You can technically say are a text. There is a script that goes with them. But when you're watching something, you're not reading the script. So we're using read as a very like broad term for interpreting and analyzing. And I just, I think the work of culture study really fits in so well with what we're going to do today. Yes. Yeah. I have not listened to the Paw Patrol episode yet. Louise got a Paw Patrol like bath toy for Hanukkah. And so, and she's always like, what's the little one's name? So <laughs> she, knows, she knows that the little one's name is Sky. Um, yeah. She has a friend at school named Sky. So that's where we are now. So I just, yeah, she doesn't know it's a show, um, but we'll see. I, I also, we can cut this if we don't have time for it. And if we, uh, because we want to get Anne on the podcast, but <laughs> we'll say, I was a little disappointed in the Taylor Swift episode. Here's where I stand right now. I really like Taylor Swift and her music. However, I would like to see some real criticism and critique of what she's doing. Not not who she is, not personal attack, not like, but I feel like there's this new bubble built around here where if you critique her, you're critiquing women and what women Mm. like. And I get that because that has been the case for so long where people just like dismissed anything that a large group of women liked. And that was like very misogynistic. And that's, that's true. But that doesn't mean that the things that many women like aren't also worthy of some like more in-depth critique. And I felt like, I, I felt like that episode verged on it with a couple of questions, but then the it was just like brushed right past. Mm-hmm. And I would like, I would like to see, see that for like the most cele- celebrated celebrity, the like universal celebrity, I feel like that's worthy of that kind of kind of, I don't know. I didn't listen to the portion of the episode behind the paywall. Me so neither. Maybe, it maybe it's there. there. Maybe. Um, she did have fangirls on to talk about it. So there yes. was a kind of, you know, that framing. Um, yeah. I I feel like that question and topic would be something that Anne would be interested in investigating. So <laughs> maybe we'll talk about it more. <laughs> Alone or with a guest. Yeah. <laughs> I know Tracy would come talk about it. Oh, gosh, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get into um, reading TV. So we are – we're going to be sharing kind of – I mean, these are five tips, but within these five tips, we have a lot of mini tips. So we're we're just talking about 
lots of different, um, not even methods, but just little questions you can keep in mind as you are watching TV, if you want, if you want to analyze it like a rich text. Um, I think these are are helpful things to keep in mind. Some of them are the same as tips we would give for analyzing a novel, and some are, of course, completely different because of of the medium. And then we're going to be using, I think, like a, a wide range of examples. But we both, since we're doing Wharton and Winter, we both started watching The Buccaneers on Apple TV, and we'll refer to that a few times um, as kind of our our common text, even though we might have some other things we we refer to as well. I'm excited to talk about the Buccaneers. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. Is your main thought that it's really bad? <laughs> not really bad, but not good. <laughs> okay. Because as I was watching, I was like, okay, I'm I'm willing and ready for Chelsea to convince me that this show somehow is capturing the spirit of the Gilded Age through its choices. Okay, you're, she's shaking her head. No. Um, <laughs> but mostly... Am I going to watch the rest of it? Yes. Oh, I'm not going to. You can fill me But in. do I like it? Not really. Did you watch the second episode? <laughs> I watched the third episode, too. Okay, there's just... And as I'm soon really sick As they were music. having sex in a rowboat... Four weeks postpartum, I was oh just God, like, that this killed is me. <laughs> well, first of all, she's running around the garden, running around the garden Handstands, with champagne splits, and just like dancing. Wheels. No, none like, of that can happen. Four weeks ago. What? And then the sex and the rowboat really just put it over I the know. edge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Unrealistic postpartum expectations aside. <laughs> Before we uh, deeply analyze the Buccaneers and talk about our tips for reading TV, I just have two like overarching questions that I think really, really help when it comes to analyzing TV and movies. Okay, well, maybe we can can apply these questions to those postpartum choices. (laughs) we should. (laughs) Um, These can also be applied to books. And I think that these questions just like really can help boil things down. Um, One is what are the choices that the creators are making? So choices can be in a book, might be anything from structure to tone to narration style um, to point of view. And in TV, a lot of it is visual and sound related. So what are the choices that they're making? And then the second question is, why did they make that choice? What are they trying to communicate through that choice? Those are the questions that I have in the back of my mind when I'm watching something that help me not only figure out, like, do I think that this is working well or not? Or, like, do I think that they're doing something interesting here? But just also, like, help me dig a little bit deeper into what's going on. yeah. I Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say this is especially helpful if when we're talking about like adaptations or like when you have things to compare it to. Just like if you read a lot of books, it gets easier to critique books. It's easier when you watch 
more TV and more movies and like have points of comparison. Yeah. I was going to say exactly the same thing, that points of comparison are really helpful when looking at these questions because sometimes we're just, we're consuming the, the piece of art or the piece of entertainment as a whole. And it can be a challenge to like think about the, the all of the choices that go into creating this whole package. I think you could do something like just if you're watching the Buccaneers, thinking about other period pieces, right? And how the choices that this show is making differ from like the Gilded Age or or maybe are similar to some of the things happening in Bridgerton. Like how are the choices the same or different from other things you've consumed in the same sort of realm or or genre. Think about multiple versions of Pride and Prejudice, like how different the choices the 1995 miniseries makes from the 2005 movie. You can also just like sub in a mental comparison. So like, okay, how would this scene be exactly how how would this scene change if if everything visually was exactly the same, but it was a different piece of music over it? How would that change the tone or what I'm taking away from it? So you can kind of just do a like this, not that in your head as you watch too. All right. That leads us really well into our first tip for reading TV and movies, which is to start with the visuals and sound. I think that with TV and movies, this is the easiest place to go because it's makes it's what makes it different from reading a book or reading a script. Um, and it's what hits you first, even if you're not like registering what kind of first impression you get from the opening credits or from the first scene, it is what hits you first and leaves that impression. Um, and so starting with the visuals and sound, it's, it's just kind of the easiest place to start with TV and movies, I think. Um, and then kind of layering things on top of that can happen later. But um, I think it's just helpful to kind of think, okay, well, what is the look and the sound of this show communicating about the style and the content? Um, I, it's so funny because so many of these shows that are streaming now have really intricate um, opening credits. So think about like the Game of Thrones. Yes, I say like the Game of Thrones credits, right? Really started something. Yeah, or the Succession theme song, or like the crowd. So many of these shows have very elaborate CGI or like sweeping big credits, and yet there's a button that you can just skip it. <laughs> and I I think that these are really interesting. I always watch them at least the first time that I'm watching this show from the first episode, because I think the visuals and the sound of those credits can communicate a lot about the show. Yeah. Do you want to talk at all about the the Buccaneers credits? Well, yeah, sure. Or did you skip it? (laughs) I watched, I watched it the first time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it's just like, it looks like every other credit of the show where it's like a close up on something and you can tell that it's creating a bigger picture and then it zooms out and you get the title of the show. Mm-hmm. But the title of the show, okay, Sarah, did it not look like every like influencer bar in Austin, Texas? Yeah, it does. With the wall of greenery and the neon sign? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's got to be intentional. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. This is, it's a TikTok Gen Z period piece. 
I thought it was interesting that because I mean we'll talk about this too, just like recurring visuals or motifs. Flowers and nature are obviously a big one. And then um I thought the opening credit is interesting because it's these like neon, like fluorescent flowers. Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of dichotomy of like something natural but something and something completely unnatural like almost at first it's almost like is this underwater coral that's like glowing and then you realize that it's really it's more flowery um so I, I mean neon flowers that visual just kind of fits the the <laughs> the vibe of the show so I think vibes wise it it fits pretty well it it's really interesting so um a few days ago, my mom and I, when I was in town for the holidays, we were watching The Gilded Age on HBO and we're watching season two, got like maybe three or four episodes into it. So I was like in that mode and mindset and can't help but compare it then to recently, last night when I was watching The Buccaneers, how different visually, stylistically all of all of that is. But the opening credits for... Um, the Buccaneers, there's like this rock song under it and it's these neon flowers, neon sign, very like influencer-y look to it at the end. The Gilded Age on HBO has like the opening scene is a railroad. It's like a train going across a railroad, which really communicates the Gilded Age and the time period. Mm -hmm. Nothing about the opening credits of the Buccaneers communicates the time period at all. You could watch that opening credit and never know it was a period piece. Right. Whereas the Gilded Age, you watch it and you're like, this is going to be a period piece for sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that the, the historical period of it all is certainly not the element of the story that they are leaning into it. I mean, it's very reminiscent of rain. Did you watch that? I did. And yeah. I, liked, I mean, I, I like liked that too. it as like, you know, I feel like it maybe show. didn't take itself as seriously as the Buccaneers sure. seems to. Um, but yeah, that same sort of like, we want to put these beautiful young actresses in beautiful historical dresses and prance them around gardens, but we're not telling a historical show. And I I think that that's appropriate for what I think it's appropriate that the um, opening credits give you that because then like the dialogue is ahistorical, the the music is like it it would be a bait and switch (laughs) to make the credits seem like it's very historical and then give you the show that they gave you. Yeah, agreed. I I was not as disappointed as some people I know who watched The Buccaneers and were like, this isn't a period show. Like, I was expecting them to talk the way they talked and to act the way they acted and to- Kind of. <laughs> yeah. It was a little, it was a little bit too, in, like, when I say the influencer affectation and, like, the Gen Z affectation of, like, we're going to Manhattan. <laughs> they are. Not all of them sound like that, but it was a little, a little bit much. Yeah. <laughs> they all sound bored when they're saying their lines. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a great way to put it. There's, yes. Yeah. Great, 
great uh, observation. All right. We will get to more. I also like I have some good things to say about this show as well. And like I said, I'm going to keep watching it because I'm having a fun enough time like I'm watching Rain on, you know, um, uh, the CW or whatever it was on back in the day. Um, What other tips or things you want to talk about with the visuals and the sound of TV and movies? Well, I I think that, you know, and we've we've talked or we've been talking kind of around this, but like visuals and music really create the tone, right? The the um, feeling that both the mood and the tone, the feeling that the the show wants the viewer to have, and kind of the the feeling or vibe or spin they're putting on whatever topic they're going to be addressing. So, right, this the the tone of this is very lighthearted, fun, up upbeat. Um it's not edgy, but because it's like rock music over visuals that are period piece, it's like pretending to be edgy. I think that's the same way that like the opening sequences with like the the neon fluorescent flowers, it's like it's gilded and edginess, <laughs> kind of a fake edginess. Um, and so I, I just, I think that it's easier to pick up on tone with visuals and music. And so this can be just a great way to practice close reading that then can apply to the books that you read as well. So just, I, and I always go back because I taught a whole lesson on this when I taught Pride and Prejudice, where we watched the opening sequences of both versions, tonally, those are so different. And they're both like true to the the source material in different ways. But tonally, those those could not be more different. And so like thinking about like light, uh, cheerful piano music versus kind of brooding, moody music. So like just asking what is the show trying to make me feel can help you arrive at tone. So we talked way more about this on one or two Patreon episodes in our recaps. Um, how Sofia Coppola, who loves Edith Wharton's The Custom of the Country, which we're reading for Wharton in winter. You can still join us. There's still time. Um, but she wrote a foreword to the book for the Penguin edition. Um, and she has a script for the custom of the country and she had a deal with Apple to make like a five or six part show. And then Apple was like, we're making the Buccaneers. And she's kind of pissed about it. She like came out and said, which I feel like a lot of people don't do because they don't want to like have a bad <laughs> relationship with a streamer who might possibly have them back again. But anyway, really interesting. Now that I watch the Buccaneers, I see why she is mad because it is, to- you can totally connect the dots to Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. from that intro. Mm-hmm. It's like, they're not doing a carbon copy because they're not doing Marie Antoinette, but like, holy whoa, is it inspired. You can't make that show without Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. That's so true. Oh, Sophia. I mean, she's doing fine, but she's fine. I'm not love, worried about her. <laughs> we'd love to see her custom of the country, especially now that yeah. we're, we're reading it. 
I, um, okay, here is one, not even necessarily good thing I'll say about the Buccaneers, but just something that I noticed because I had watched the the first episode a couple weeks ago and then I watched episode two last night and then just watched the opening sequence um, before we recorded. And in terms of paying attention to the visuals, going backwards like that was so interesting because especially once they get to England and especially in episode two, the the, na- the natural landscape is so important and the gardens and the wildness of the, the florals, so many flowers <laughs> throughout this show. Mm-hmm. The first shot, Chelsea of the show is a bunch of flowers in a box. And then it pans out from there to show somebody cor- carrying corsages into the, the ballroom where this wedding is going to be hosted. And I, I think that's brilliant symbolism to show, right, this like these boxed, like, you know, gated flowers, right, all like in a little line just ready to be brought into the world and then juxtaposing that with the lush natural landscape that they get to in subsequent scenes. So some like and and I'm I probably wouldn't have picked up on the fact that that was the very first shot unless I went backwards like that, but that can be a great way to pay attention to visuals and sound is to just at the end and this we recommend this for books too, right? Once you get yeah, to the all end, the time. just go back and look at the very beginning and think, okay, how was the creator, the author setting me up for some of these themes and what to pay attention to from the very beginning? So that was that was really cool. And that actually I think leads well into our second tip, which is in addition to just generally paying attention to visuals and sound you can close read a scene the same way you close read a page, paragraph, chapter of a book. Yeah, which you just did brilliantly. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that's, that's a great example of close reading. I don't, without you saying that, I don't think I would have noticed. So part of that opening scene is um, Nan is the character who's carrying the box of corsages and she's going up this staircase and the inside of this Gilded Age mansion is covered in flowers, flowers everywhere, florals all over this mansion. It's beautiful. And then when they do go to Europe, there aren't a bunch of flowers in these old stuffy manor houses. You have to go out to the garden for the flowers and like escape to nature. So I think um, that's interesting too. This the show is really setting up this American um, woman versus <laughs> British woman in a way that I did not like. In a very like not like other girls way, I thought. Um, yeah, I I agree. But. Um, Okay, and, anyway, and the so, opening song is called North American Scum. So yeah. it's really, really setting it up. Definitely. Um, something that you can look at in addition to just like the colors and the literal visuals of the set um, when you're watching a show is pay attention to some camera choices. And you don't have to have like this 
wide knowledge of camera work in order to do this. Um, just a couple of things are nice to keep in mind. Typically, shows will open with wide sweeping shots to give you a lot of exposition and give you a big view of what's happening and set the scene. If a show doesn't do that, then it's doing something really interesting with the opening scene. Um, if you're watching a scene and there are a lot of tight close-ups, then the emphasis is really on the emotion and um, what the actors are doing versus if you've got a really wide shot that's showing, for example, the sea um, at Cornwall. And um, that is doing something very different and communicating something very different than a tight close-up of a face. And then also like the angle of the camera, if it's a low angle, like looking up at the characters, kind of like how um, in not the opening scene exactly, but like, I guess opening scene, the opening sequence of the Buccaneers, how the girls are coming down the staircase and it like gives their little name card as they're coming down. And the camera's really looking up at them from an angle that like places them in the main character position, a position of power versus if it was looking down at them, they would look small. Um, just those little subtle communications that the camera is doing do a lot of work of point of view. Um, so like if you're looking through the camera lens and it's almost like you're seeing what a character sees that is an interesting way to use the camera for point of view. Whereas if you're reading a book, like it switches who's narrating the chapter. Um, you, like I said, you don't need to have a big knowledge of like camera choices and you don't need to know exactly what the shot is called in order to know that the camera is communicating in a certain way. Something that I noticed with the Buccaneers is they have a lot of these like wide sweeping shots, but it didn't last very long. There were a lot of really sharp cuts, which isn't necessarily the camera. It's more editing. Yeah. The camera never stops moving and there are tons of cuts. Yeah. It wasn't, it's like, it didn't have enough room to like breathe. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if we're looking at the Gilded Age, a Julian Fellows show, like there's going to be almost maybe three seconds too long to breathe where it's like, okay, like we've seen enough of the shot. We want to get back to what the people are doing. Um, it, it was very choppy in the Buccaneers. I noticed the same thing. And I, I charitably am thinking that the like, because sometimes the camera too is a little bit like jostling or yeah. moving. So I think maybe trying to capture like the energy of these girls, but I also think it's like a the audience is young and we need to – everyone's attention spans are short. Totally. And we've just got – it's like Coco Melon. It's like let's just change up the scene every two no. seconds to keep Painful. our attention. <laughs> yeah. It's – it's really unfortunate because it just makes me feel patronized as an audience yes. member. Yes, right. And when I'm, shows are like that. I'm not saying that that Gen Z viewers could not watch. I'm saying that's totally. what the idea of Gen Z viewers Exactly. Is. Yeah. We want to think better of Gen Z. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's the creators of the show are not Gen Z. Right. It's creators <laughs> saying this is what Gen Z wants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we want to think better yes. of their tastes and say – they can handle not having like constant switching shots all the time. Um, anyway, what else do we want to close read from a scene or this opening scene in the Buccaneers, Sarah? 
Uh, well, we already talked about the symbolic visuals of the flowers. The girls are the flowers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think that, I mean, it, it's interesting with this. And I think my, my like reader brain was like, oh, I, I can't analyze some of the, some of the acting and directing choices because I don't know the source material. Yeah. But I have a feeling that Nan doesn't like climb out of a window and down a building (laughs) in the source material. So I'm just going to go ahead and talk about like that, that choice, right? Like some of these ideas of how you are getting instantly like who this character is like, and she is kind of a like, not like other girls girl a little bit. But it's interesting because in the voiceover, which they, which is another thing they do in the opening, is Nan gets a voiceover. So we know she's our primary mm-hmm. heroine, even though we are in this this group of of girls. That she is like not particularly interested in romance. That she like the loves of her life are her friends, and and I think that that's a really. I, I think that's really interesting to just like put that out there in like the first like diet, not dialogue, but in, internal monologue we hear of the show that they're kind of, they're telling you right away. Like, you know, this is a show about female friendship and yes, we're going to have lots of, you know, romance and love stories, but this is, this is our focus. It felt a little bit like protesting too much considering mm-hmm. that the 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 opening scene is also a a wedding and then like you know we go from from there to be all about which you know is like very um goes all the way back to Pride and Prejudice and and Jane Austen and like you know this is not going to be that kind of story oh oh yes it is because of the time we're in etc um i also think that just an interior monologue is an interesting choice too because it sets us up to really care about Nan's interiority. I think there are also a lot of like close-up shots on on her. Again, I'm not sure I've felt that beyond kind of some of those choices, but but that that those were really important choices for us as a viewing audience to pay attention to certain things. Absolutely. There is a lot of telling and mm-hmm. not showing mm-hmm. in this show, which is so funny to say for a TV show. Yeah. Like when we say telling and not showing for a book, what we're saying is like the author is telling these things, but not giving us details or not making the characters act according to what they're saying. That's kind of what we mean. In a show, it is like um, the script is saying something but it's saying it a lot and over and over again. And we're not necessarily, we're getting it communicated through the script and not through the actions of the characters mm-hmm. who are like built over time. Um, so we will get to talking about reading a script um, and what that means when you're watching TV. But I think we should talk about using literary lenses when we're watching TV and kind of apply this to the Buccaneers. We've kind of been talking about this already. Um, 
but we talk about critical theory and literary lenses all the time on the podcast. These are just lenses that we use in order to um, examine a text more closely with a certain topic or subject in mind. Um, we talk about the feminist lens quite often, which is really easy to apply to this show because they are putting it out there in this opening scene that they want us to analyze this show through a feminist lens. Um, they are putting this show out as a feminist show. Um, I think with any Gilded Age show, the Marxist lens is really interesting to use looking at class and power. Um, the show is a lot about power and what power women have, but um, any Gilded Age piece is going to be about money and old money and new money and what money buys and who has the power in society. So um, those are just a couple of ways that we can use critical theory. Were there any other lenses or um, pieces from the show that made you think about our literary lens work, Sarah? Well, I'm I'm interested in whether the show will engage itself with critical race theory or post-colonial theory or um, with any queer theory. Because one thing that I, I think is um, really great with a lot of the period pieces that we're getting now is casting of diverse actors and more openness to storylines that didn't make it visibly onto the page in Edith, Wharton, Edith Wharton's time, or but doesn't mean those types of stories didn't exist for real people, um, like queer love stories. I am always interested in whether a show like Bridgerton or something is going to en engage with its own choices or whether it's more of like a colorblind casting. I in the two episodes I watched I have not been able to pick up on what the show which which direction it's going. I hope that it engages with those questions and is not colorblind casting, but that's not the vibe I was getting. I have news for you. Okay. <laughs> in episode 3, um Conchita who is I would say aside from Nan, like the other main character, yes. Nan and Conchita are really the only girls that like get to do anything yeah. in this show. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't even remember any of the other girls' names. Ginny is Nan's sister. That's it. Like mm -hmm. I can't remember the other two because they're not doing anything. They're barely even talking. Yeah. Um and that's a choice too. And and yeah. something we did not talk about with camera is Laura Mulvey, who is a cinema critic and theorist and her idea of the, the male gaze and how that applies to the camera. Mm -hmm. And I would say that this camera has a male gaze in the way it lingers on the girl's bodies. Um, mm. And it's not fully objectifying them in every scene, but there are certainly moments where it is. Anyways, sorry, I totally interrupted you. No. But <laughs> um. Oh, what was I saying though? You were saying that the the other girls they don't get to do much, yes. but Conchita and Nan are yes. are two primary. And um, Conchita has brown skin, and um, I think that a couple of the other girls are racially diverse in some way, but it's never mentioned. Like this is their race, and one of Nan's love interests, yes, is as well. Mm -hmm. Um. And 
so anyway, Conchita has married this lord, and she is now a member of this white British family. And for the first two episodes, like a big conversation is her just being like, I don't fit in here. And her husband was concerned, like, you're not going to fit in in England. Under that, like you can read into part of that is why is because you're brown, Conchita. Um, But nobody ever says that. It's just like, well, she's a party girl and she's like fun. And and also like some of those can be really harmful stereotypes. And like the loud girl is the brown girl. Like there's some iffy thing stuff going on here. Um, anyway, all of that is like brushed aside. Her race and color of her skin, nothing is ever mentioned in the first couple of episodes. And then episode three, there it comes to a head where there's a confrontation with her family or with her in-laws. And she basically like walks up to them and is like, you're never going to accept me because I have darker skin than you. And the parents are like, oh, well, we never see the color of skin. We're colorblind. Like almost word for word. That's what they say. And she's like, well, I have to think about it every day. And she storms off. And then her husband goes after her and he's like, I love you and I see you and blah, blah, blah. And she gets comes back and she's like, oh, we're happy again. That is it. Oh, it's a quick scene. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're going to acknowledge this real quick and we're going to like zoom by it. I don't know if it continues in other episodes where it's brought up again, but it was like, I do not think it was handled well. Um, Bridgerton has colorblind casting and they don't really acknowledge or go there but then they um came out with queen charlotte and that show really does okay i haven't and watched it's very that much yet. a supplement oh you should i, queen I charlotte is really, really good. good yeah it's better than bridgerton even though i really like bridgerton too but anyway um so that's episode three the gilded age on hbo there is also mixed criticism for that show because we do have Black characters who are like doing exciting things in the show. And there's very much like a dual POV of like um, the main Black character, Peggy, I believe her name is. She is like a main character and sort of like set on equal footing, at least in the way that the show um, captures her world. There's like a very deep scope of um, Black life in New York City that's depicted on the show. And yet she like gets the brunt of the horrible historical um, shit that happens Mm -hmm. because it's like, we want to be true to history. And also we want to have this like strong and interesting character. Um, But like, she's really excited because she gets, she's a journalist and she gets to go and travel um, to Booker T. Washington's house and like interview him and stuff. But her mom has to give her the talk about like, you're going down South and you've never been South of New York before. And this is how you have to act. Um, anyway, what I'm saying is creating a period piece and incorporating stories of a diverse range of people can be a really tricky space in that capturing true history can be really painful and not always fun to watch and also leaving things unacknowledged feels so like 
surface level and basic. And wrong. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that people shouldn't, like, that creators shouldn't make period pieces anymore, that, like, there aren't interesting ways to do it. I think Queen Charlotte is a brilliant example of a piece gone well. But anyway, there are critics who say the Gilded Age on HBO is doing it really well. And then there are other people who are saying, like, no, it's not that great. So, um, but that's where this critical theory comes in handy. I think it's important to engage with those questions as you're watching. So if you're watching the Buccaneers, you're like waiting, like, are they going to mention this about Conchita and like acknowledge that it's not just her personality, but the way she looks that the family's struggling with. Um, And then they do, but it's so quick and it's like so icky and just like, I don't know. Part of it is the acting is bad. Yeah. Yeah. And what can you do about that? It's a lot of really young actors. It is. It is. And, And this is why like talking about like the choices, right? what choices are being made, why those choices are being made, and then whether they're executed successfully, right? And and mm-hmm. in some cases, like maybe like the idea is there and then like in terms of the editing or in terms of the acting, like it's not always um, executed as well as we we want it to be. And that's part of the like, okay, like I see what I see what this is doing and but I, I'm not liking it or, or it's not successful. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that I think probably a lot of viewers of TV use like these critical theories when they're watching. Like if you've ever said that you hate succession because you don't want to watch a show about a bunch of rich people, that's Marxist theory, right? Or if you ever watch a show and you're like this or movie or – and you think this movie only has one woman, right? That's feminist theory. Mm-hmm. So so we can just like extend those a little bit more and get even nerdier with our reading of of TV and film because that's the fun stuff to to talk about. All right, Sarah, let's talk about this script a little bit. So another of our tips is to read the script. I don't mean literally that you have to go and find and procure the script of the show and flip through it. There are people who do that and like really enjoy reading scripts of TV that they love. I think that's fascinating. It's cool. I don't want to spend my time doing that. But if you listen to an audiobook, you are listening to text. If you're watching a movie, you're listening to text. Um, And I always have my closed captioning on. I need captions. Like, it's a requirement. And I can't so, believe we ever used to watch TV without right? it. Right? Yeah. Right? Um, it's a requirement, but it also helps me kind of identify places where if someone says something or like the script feels like off to me or I don't know. It helps me analyze the script a little bit more when I can see it on screen. And Sarah, in watching the Buccaneers, were there moments where you were like, what they just said and then what they responded didn't actually make any sense? Yes, I wish I had written a couple of d- them down. <laughs> there were just some lines that I was like, maybe they pulled this directly from Wharton and they thought they were including the book in a really cool way. But what you said and what you said together, it doesn't make sense. Like, no one would respond that. Yeah. <laughs> what did you just say? Yeah. Yeah. I I think that, I mean, reading the script is so, 
so interesting in terms of thinking about like, yeah, the way the dialogue meshes or does not mesh. Like, I, I think we often say about books that not or not often, but but a critique I know I've made about books is that the dialogue doesn't feel like how people really talk to each other. I think that comes across even more sometimes in in TV. And then like the voiceovers, because they're so prominent, are a great opportunity too to read. Mm-hmm the script and think about like the the word choice. Um, again, with these choices, you can think about, okay, well, how would it be different if they had just changed this one word? Um, like I, I like they talk about like that that opening um that opening sequence with Nan's voiceover. She says that like girls a girl's story always has to be like a love story or a tragedy. Um, and even just the, the use of the word girl mm-hmm. instead of woman is really interesting, right? It tells you a yeah. lot about what the show is doing. Another moment in that opening scene that just made me want to slam my head into the wall was- I'm um, excited for you to finish this series. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Conchita is talking to Nan and Nan's saying something and Conchita goes, you're complicated. We're complicated. (laughs) No. (laughs) And I was like, all right, there's the theme of the show. We're we're girls. We're complicated. (laughs) It's basically, it's reading like that TikTok trend. (laughs) Yeah. We're girls. We're complicated. We're (laughs) girls. We like flowers. We're girls. We're going to drink champagne in the garden. We're girls. We're going to marry the Duke. We're girls. We don't care if we just had a baby four weeks ago. We're going to have sex in a rowboat. (laughs) That is how this show reads to me. Um, So that's like a benefit of reading the script because there were things about this script that really had me shaking my head. Or when I was talking about the show don't tell, the script is where a lot of that comes across for me because they are telling us constantly what these girls are like, what their motivations are, that they're not like other girls, but they are not showing. Aside mm-hmm. from maybe Nan, like, climbing all over the place or mm-hmm. taking her shoes off all the time. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I think that word choice and pacing and foreshadowing, all of those things that you would pay attention to in a novel are available in the script. I also think having the captions on and, like, reading, paying attention to what is being said can help you – interpret actors' performances. So like I said before, it sounds like the actors are always bored. Um, They just always sound kind of like they have that bored influencer affectation to me. Um, But also every now and then like the banter's not flowing between people. Like there's a second or two pause between lines that doesn't sound natural. And um, when you are thinking about the script and thinking about like, well, how could that have been delivered better? It's a little bit more, it's a little bit easier to see sort of like acting choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of like a, maybe something we've touched on on the podcast before that has like really great script or, or choices to read in that, mm. in, in that way. I mean, I, I think I think that the um, 2005 Pride and Prejudice has a really great script 
really like great choices in terms of what they pull from Austin and what they add to heighten the romance, uh, bring in some things maybe from like other Austin novels just to make Mm -hmm. the the romance even – Except the, the is good. epilogue, which is oh yeah, trash. <laughs> yes, um, the Emma script I think was really, really. Do really you amazing. know what I just learned? Like two what? days ago, do you know who wrote the Emma script? Eleanor the Catton. Script? Yes, Eleanor Catton, really? the author of the Luminaries and Burnham Wood, and the rehearsal wrote oh. the script for Emma. She's like my new favorite person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I might read well, she that She did script. an amazing <laughs> job. She did a great job. Um, another one that could be fun to analyze is the persuasion on Netflix because it's hated. And just like you can't decipher, like you can't be a book critic and only read books that you like. Yes. You can't be a movie critic and only talk about movies that you liked. You got to watch some bad stuff. You got to like work those muscles of why did this not work? If you're going to ask the question, what choices are being made and why are those choices being made? And then go to the next level, which is were those good choices or were those bad choices? How would I have done it differently? You got to have a mix of the good and the bad. So, so true. Okay. That's going to be my, my my words to live by in 2024. All right. (laughs) And speaking of are we, we kind of like stopped numbering these and really there's like a million tips in here. Look not, at show notes but, or the newsletter so that you can get like a clearer picture of this. But if you were not keeping track at home, this is our fifth tip, <laughs> um, which is to read critic critics' reviews. I like to read reviews either of books or shows when I am at, at like the midway point or when I'm partially through them. I don't want to read too many reviews before I start something because I don't want to go in with other people's ideas in my head. Um, But I don't like to wait until the end either. If I read some reviews when I've watched a couple episodes or when I'm partway through a book, then I get to have like a dialogue in my head with those reviews as I continue watching. So I'll know what some some other critics thought. And then I will get to, as I watch, think about whether I agree or disagree or look for moments that prove their point or that go against what they were arguing. I find that to be my favorite way to encounter criticism. I like that a lot. It gives you something to think about then as you're, as you're watching or as you're reading Mm -hmm. a little framework. Um, there are two, we'll link to a few reviews of the Buccaneers if you're interested, but there are two that I want to talk about, Sarah. <laughs> I didn't read any because I'm probably not going to watch any more, but I'm excited. Um, <laughs> the review in The Atlantic by Sophie Gilbert, the headline is, let's never do this to Edith Wharton again. <laughs> and then the subheading is, the writer's deeply emotional architecture is made dully explicit in a new adaptation of the Buccaneers. Dully explicit is a great way to describe this show. Um, That's such and then, a good and like, phrase. It's a, it's a great review to read because it is pretty critical. And then um, the review from The Guardian and a couple of other really similar reviews. Um, 
articulate this in a different way. The Buccaneers review, enormous fun for Bridgerton fans. And then the subheading is a gaggle of New York society girls descend on London in this spirit spirited period rom-com. Their raucous capers are total nonsense, but that's what makes it so lovable. Okay. Well, that's nice. <laughs> Good for them. And they're like, any positive review is generally like, if you like Bridgerton, you'll probably like this. And it's just fun. The review that takes it more seriously in The Atlantic really picks it apart, which is what we're doing on, on this episode. If I had just watched this as my naptime show and like not come on here to talk about it, I might be like, oh, I like that. That was fine. But because I was reading it with a literary lens and like really picking out pieces that I wanted to talk about it for close reading with you, I was like, oh, this does not hold up. Um, And so just like if you're reading a book and you're like, I'm reading this for entertainment or I am reading this um, for learning, like the expectations that you bring into it or the reasons that you're reading, the reasons that you're watching can affect your impression of the text. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great point. And something that I think we get asked about our, our reading is like, do we ever stop reading in this way? <laughs> like mm-hmm. we talk about books on the podcast. And I think the answer is kind of yes and, and kind of no. Like I think in some ways it's impossible to totally stifle that aspect of our reading reading lives. But certainly like we scale it up and scale it down depending on our, our reading purpose. And so with all of these tips today, we are certainly not you know, sending you out to watch your naptime show or, you know, curl up with your glass of wine and have to like pick apart everything you watch. But, but I mean, just like, I think for both of us, when we were teaching, we knew not not all of our students were going to be English majors, but we would have loved for them to be watching TV one day and have like some feminist theory pop into their Mm -hmm. brain or to notice the you know juxtaposition of all the flowers in in a show and it's just it can be a way to enhance your consumption of art and and entertainment yeah yeah well i do want to ask sarah was there anything that you liked about the buccaneers <laughs> <laughs> that pause I thought it was beautiful. The costumes oh, it is beautiful. are really fun to look at. And mm-hmm. the flowers are obviously gorgeous. And the scenery mm-hmm. and like the settings. Which makes me sad that there are so many quick camera cuts. Because I want to linger. Especially in a period piece. Like I want to linger on how pretty everything is. Part of the escapism of a period piece is just like the view. And the pretty houses. And the dresses. Yeah. Yeah. It It, it is it is beautiful. I do I mean I I like the attempt at focusing on the girl's friendship and I guess I hope that that come you know deepens in the episodes because I think I do think that that is I mean that was like something that we liked talking about when we read A Room of One's Own was just the way Virginia Woolf points out that in all of these stories of women, you would think that women never talked to each other. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I really like the project of 
taking a period piece and emphasizing that. I think that's one of the things I really liked about Rain, actually. I think it did that well. So Without talking about it every other minute. Right. Yes. And Bridgerton, I think, does that really well, too. Yeah, that's true. In a few specific moments, like, and actually some of the friendships between the mothers, which they do in Queen Charlotte really well, which is really sweet. Um, Like, uh, Eloise and Penelope's friendship is really emphasized without them saying, this is a show about friendship, gal pals. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, uh, yeah, other shows do it well without, like, having to be so in your face about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about you? I think other than the beautiful I like some of the casting choices. I actually think the actress who plays Nan is the least annoying of the girls. Mm-hmm. I think she's not doing that kind of like bored thing with her voice. She's just not super dynamic. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But she is palatable. <laughs> She's tolerable. It's just like it's the way it's the way the other girls are delivering their lines that I just it kind of makes me cringe a little bit. But because they sound like they're talking to TikTok. But um, and I I think that um, the guy who um, the guy who plays Guy he's he's cute. He seems like a decent actor, and this is like the first thing he's ever been in. Yeah, I noticed that. I like him too. Um, and the. Guy who plays Theo, too. I actually thought that the two guys who are kind of competing for Nan's heart were, like, solid period piece actors. Like, they're pretty good. Um, Which makes me sad that I liked them better than the whole girl group when the girl group is the point. Um, Well, and they're just – they're not getting good stuff to do. Like No, they're they're, not. You know, they're, like, trying to imbue them, endow them with personality by just having them, like – drink a lot and run mm-hmm. around outside is really boring. And it, it's just that, I don't know, that, yeah, it's disappointing. If you were going to read a historical romance novel about a group of girls who like went and was looking for husbands, each girl would have an occupation or a hobby or something other than drinking and dancing that would make her very interesting to the audience. So as a historical romance reader, I also take issue with that. Um, I think Christina Hendricks as the mom, like could be good, but she's again, not given anything good to do. And she's supposed to be delivering these like funny one-liners and they don't land. Like she's supposed to be kind of a funny character. It doesn't work. Um, which I don't think is her. I think it's the the script and the director's choices. Um, so I like I like some of the casting. Mia Threepleton is Kate Winslet's daughter. She's the um, she's got that little like sapphic romance going on. She's oh, the um, yeah, yeah she, that's Kate she Winslet's daughter. Like, she looks like her. I can totally see. Yeah, that. and that's she's cool. got some acting chops. Um, but the girl that she's paired with. I cannot stand. Yeah. 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 She's, so, she's, she seems like she's on a different show from the rest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so there are some bright moments in the casting. <laughs> um, but I the reason that I will keep watching it is some people for their as we said, nap time show or the, I'm going to unwind and watch some trash TV. Some people watch the real housewives or the bachelor or like some 
junky reality TV. Some people watch Law and Order or the reruns of their favorite sitcom. I really like to have a period piece, even if that period piece is not great. Um, this is the kind of show that I like to relax to um, because the visuals are calming because in, in this show, not really, especially the soundtrack. I'm really sick of rock music by the third episode yeah. because it's used all the time, not sparingly. Um, but it is exactly the kind of show where I don't have to think too hard about what's going on. I can enjoy watching it. I can kind of make fun of it a little bit. And, you know, it's it's exactly like the kind of show that I like to watch for my junk TV um, instead of reality TV or something else. So everyone has their own preference for that. This is mine. <laughs> um, and so I am interested to keep watching it. And um, I will say like the plot as we move forward is like at least minimally enough to keep me hooked and interested in what's going to happen. I agree with that. And I'm hopeful that if there is a second season, the girls will be given more to do. Um, and also that maybe they've learned, they will have learned a lot and get some more acting experience under their belts to make a better show. So it, to me, it's the kind of like, CW Rain, where it was like very much that guilty pleasure kind of show. That's that's this for me. So that's why I'll keep watching it. Well, keep us posted. And <laughs> listeners, if you are watching, let us know what you think and what shows you might be applying some of these tips to. Um, we have just a couple book recs in closing. Yeah, Sarah, what would you recommend and what's kind of like the reasoning or what you decided to pair with this? Well, I tried to pick some like some fun kind of glitzy things. My first is Anna Kay by Jenny Lee, which can we get that adapted instead of, I mean, Anna Kay is probably one of the best adaptation or retellings of a classic I have ever read. It's a retelling of Anna Karenina set in like elite Manhattan boarding schools very um, diverse group of characters, but and so fun, but also really biting. Just love it. Not a period piece, right? It's modernized, but um, but so fun. Sex and Vanity is another great retelling of a classic, um, a retelling of A Room with a View by Ian Forrester. This Sex and Vanity is by Kevin Kwan. It is also just like fun and frothy, but with a with some, you know, kind of unexpected commentary mixed in there. So I, I would recommend both of those as great, fun beachy reads. And then um, The Great White Bard by Farah Kareem Cooper. Have you read this yet, Chelsea? No, but it's like top of my list for 2024 nonfiction yeah. to, to read. Yeah, so. it's so good. And I was just thinking about it as we were talking about the casting choices and and period pieces and and this book is just great at examining and 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 telling us like historical fact about you know I, I think for a long for a long time people were like well it's a period piece so like of course we're casting all all white actors and and you know she's like no even in Renaissance England there were people of color and like and Shakespeare's plays deal explicitly and implicitly with race and then how we deal with that in terms of 
choices that we make in interpretation, in direction, in casting is really important. And so um, I think it's a great one for like anyone who's interested in, in Shakespeare, but also just some interesting questions and literary criticism that then can be applied to anything you read or watch. So highly recommend that one. If you like all of the sort of set pieces of the Buccaneers, like you like the look, you like the costumes, you like the party scenes and the balls and the romance and um, kind of like those big period piece, Gilded Age set pieces, then I have a historical romance series to recommend by Joanna Shoup. I think I've recommended her Gilded Age romances here before, um, but not this series. This series is the Fifth Avenue Rebels series. And the first book is called The Heiress Hunt. And um, the main character, the heroine, plays tennis. And she's like this really good tennis player. And um, her mother wants to marry her off. So they have a house party. So there are all these like house party games and things. Um, So there are some really fun Gilded Age scenes with that house party. And then the second book in that series, The Lady Gets Lucky, the um, male main character is trying to open up a disreputable supper club and he needs a chef. And through like... I don't even know how they explain it, but the, um, his love interest who is, um, I think she just like ended up in the kitchen because she, I don't remember why, but she cooks (laughs) and she's like, I'm supposed to marry some guy and like, you know, be a society wife, but I like cooking. So she ends up like being, being a chef for him. Anyway, it's really fun. Um, the Bride Goes Rogue is the third in the series, and um, it's about a wallflower. And um, there's a masquerade scene that's really fun, like an opera masquerade scene. And then um, The Duke Gets Even is the fourth and my favorite. And um, it's about an heiress who behaves pretty pretty badly and has like a bad reputation about town. And a duke. And their first meeting um, in the first chapter is that they have this midnight tryst swimming um, in the sea. And so all of those kind of like great sweeping big scenes and um, like I said, set pieces are there in this series, but it's just the banter is better than the Buccaneers. The um, the female friendship is really good in these books too. You don't have to read these in order. So if one is available at your library and the other isn't yet, um, you don't need to read them in order, but they're just really fun. So if you need something with the vibes of the Buccaneers, but a little bit better writing and still great historical detail, the Fifth Avenue Rebels series by Joanna Shoup should really do the trick for you this winter. All right. Well, if you loved this nerdy deep dive and reading tips, you should check out our bonus content on Patreon where we hold these types of discussions as well as casual conversations about classic and contemporary issues in the book world um, often. And for just $5 a month, you'll be able to listen to our Friday bonus episodes. For $10 a month, 
You also get access to our recap episodes for the custom of the country and our classes, our book club discussions for Wharton in winter. And it is not too late to join in and get all of this goodness. Um, You can go back and listen to things that you missed. So for $10, you'll be a literature scholar and get all of our Wharton in winter special content as well. So go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to sign up. Special thank you to our executive producers who help keep our show running, Emma, Dilma, Kathy, Amy, Jody, and Diane. Thank you so much for supporting our show so generously. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music and all of our Patreon Classics Club for engaging in nerdy conversation with us every month. We'll be back soon with an episode on pairings for our favorite period dramas. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Thank you.